Hey, hey, what a beautiful day. This is Calvin Rosser from the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. You can find me at Calvin underscore Rosser on Twitter. And this is Steph Smith. You can find me at Steph Smith IO on Twitter. Today, we're going to talk about the dangers and prevalence of absolutist thinking and a concept called zeroism. So I learned of the concept zeroism a few weeks ago on the All In podcast. And since then, I've been thinking a lot about it. For those listening who may not be familiar with the concept, Calvin, why don't you explain how you view zeroism? Sure. So I think another way to think about it is perfection is the enemy of the good or progress. And so just a couple of examples of what zeroist thinking looks like. It'd be things like schools can't reopen until all teachers and all students are vaccinated. The world is a bad place unless no one ever tells a lie. We can't use a software unless it has zero risk of being attacked. I can't invest unless I have zero chance of losing money. All mask wearing is a total infringement on my freedom. It's basically a world in which you're not seeing the shades of gray. There was this great quote from a New York Mag article, which is where I saw zeroism, which says, zeroism is an inability to conceive of public health measures in cost-benefit terms. The pandemic becomes an enemy that must be destroyed at all costs, and any compromise could lead to death and is therefore unacceptable. Let's talk about the pandemic for a little bit. We'll talk about other things as well. But this is an example where I think we've seen zeroist thinking on both sides here. And I just want to dive into why that hasn't been so productive and maybe has divided us more and not allowed us to make progress towards fighting this thing. I think, like you said, the pandemic has been this really interesting case study where people have been really polarized. And there's a lot of reason to be polarized about such a big, important topic within society. But zeroism comes into play here where, at least as it relates to the pandemic, I think you've seen a lot of people struggle to adjust their mindset as we get more data. And one of those aspects is people who don't seem to want our businesses, our society to open back up because, of course, there is a risk that people will get COVID and people will die from COVID. And one of the interesting parts of COVID is now that it's completely distributed throughout our world, we will always have COVID. And something that we need to come to terms with is just what risk of COVID are we willing to accept now? Because that is something that we need to evaluate. And something that you've brought up on a prior pod is just in life, no matter what you do, whether it's investing, whether it's through diseases or what you choose to work on, there is some level of risk in whatever you are choosing to do. And trying to approximate zero risk is not just impossible, but it's also unproductive. For sure. So one thing with the whole COVID situation, it's all front and center because, hey, this is the first pandemic we've had in 100 years. It's been pretty bad for people across the world in different ways. And there's some just like global trauma to this. The media is also just shoving it in our face at all times. And our lives have been disrupted. And so it's hard not to think about COVID. The thing, though, is if you just focused on having zero COVID deaths, what does that actually mean? Let's say that means we always wear a mask, we shut down things forever. There's all these downstream effects to this as well. There's the effects on the economy. There's the effects on people's mental health. There's the effects on rates of diabetes and obesity if people can't go to gyms, which, by the way, increase your chances of COVID. But not only that, that also takes away attention from other problems that we have. There's still tons of people in poverty. There's still all kinds of discrimination. There's still XYZ problems in the world, still tons of people dying from diarrhea in countries that don't have as many resources. My point is that the world is really complex. There's a ton of problems to focus on. And if you just focus on one, you're not really doing a cost benefit there, which is what are the kind of costs to me just focusing on zero deaths here? And is that worth it? And what does that mean for my ability to solve other problems, which may be causing even more deaths? 
I think the key here is taking COVID as an example. It's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of different opinions on the topic and how they should be addressed. But then you take that spectrum and then you plop it amongst so many other spectrums of things that are already happening in the world that are all relative to one another. And one of the aspects that I find interesting about how many people have viewed the COVID pandemic is they've taken a side and it's very binary. And they don't really see this as the spectrum where if you were to take another example, let's say like gun control is also a very touchy subject that people take very clear sides on most of the time. But separating from guns specifically, you could reimagine that spectrum. Imagine just like the things that we're okay with people having. So on the very not controversial side of that, everyone's okay with someone else owning a pillow in their home. People are like, yeah, of course, I want you to have that freedom. If you go to the other side of that spectrum, I'm sure most people would not be okay with people having bombs in their house. There is a spectrum in terms of the things that we are okay with other humans having. And guns is just somewhere along that spectrum. And people's viewpoint happens to just be where they happen to draw that line. And I think if we view things more along that spectrum, then we can see a little more clearly as to why zeroism really isn't a strategy because you're approaching that very extreme part of the spectrum. Yeah. And I think one of the things we can't discount here, it's true with guns as well, but COVID has become politicized. So you're either on one side where you're fighting for freedom against institutions that are trying to control you, or you're on the other side where you're fighting to save lives of the most disadvantaged people in the world. And it's become tied to people's identities in a very real way. And that has led to I think absolutist thinking here. And I'm not here to comment on which side is wrong or right. I actually think as you mentioned, there's shades of gray and there's some practical response that fits between the two that I just mentioned, where we need to be real about resources that we have and trade-offs and also be compassionate about people who are affected by this thing and figure out how to help them as well. One of the little thought loops that I went down when I was thinking about the response to COVID was how did people respond when we introduced speed limits and seatbelts? Because in America, there's this kind of really strong tie for individual freedom, right? And so I was wondering, like, driving a car is a risky exercise. People die driving cars every year, and things like seatbelts and speed limits are designed to at least limit the number of deaths across society. So those are functions like mask wearing or closing down businesses like nightclubs to reduce the transmission of COVID. I want to look back at newspaper articles and see, did people backlash and say, hey, seatbelts are against my freedom? Like... I shouldn't have to wear this or were they happy to wear it? My guess would be there was some sort of backlash there. But these days we all grow up and we wear seatbelts and we're mostly cool with it. What I want to communicate there is that COVID is really fresh. So we're just going through the trauma processing and response to that. I think over time we'll have a more balanced perspective, but it also reminds me of what happened with 9-11 when we were young. There was a response from both political parties, which is we need to eliminate terrorism and make it a 0% chance that you would ever be involved in a terrorist event. And so airport security, we're going to invest billions of dollars into that and make it a really rigorous process and even racially discriminate. And we had the Patriot Act and now going through an airport is a bad experience because of that. And I'm not sure how much safer we are because we have all these precautions. I think those two examples side by side are really interesting because both of them, just like pretty much anything we do, has risk. So driving a car and flying in an airplane both have risk. And I guess objectively, flying in an airplane today has less risk if you look at the data than driving a car. But they are both things that people today are happy to take on the risk for. And ultimately, wherever we end up after the pandemic in terms of what risk people are willing to take, 
that will just have to emerge over time. But what I think is important for people to realize is that zeroist strategies don't work. They're not practical. You mentioned the word resources before. The world has a certain number of resources to dedicate to implementing certain things. And I guess with the case of airplanes, they decided to invest a lot of those resources in making airline safety incredibly safe. But still, at the end of the day, airline safety isn't 100% safe. And I think it's just important for people to realize that trying to be perfect in any of these circumstances one, is impossible, but two, ends up meaning that you're investing a much higher number of resources than probably is productive. And what I mean by that is if you've ever heard of the Pareto principle, it's like investing 20% of the effort for 80% of the results, right? Now, not everything operates like the Pareto principle, but if you were to still use that concept and recognize that often you can get quite far with a certain amount of effort and then getting to that perfect state takes a lot more effort, you're basically saying, to get to that perfect state, you'd be investing 80% of the effort. Does that make sense? Yeah, something that just came to mind thinking about Pareto and how we allocate resources, it seems like a disproportionate number of resources will go into events that we as humans find really scary. You have the airline example. Imagine if you were on a plane that was going down. Like That's a traumatic and scary event. And I know I think about it as well despite it being actually quite low risk. I don't know that many resources go into this, but another one is shark bites. They're very infrequent, but they sit in the minds of people. And I guess there's not a lot of resources going into that, but these things that are pushed in front of us that are scary events that even have a low probability of happening, lots of attention, at least, if not financial resources, goes into solving these problems. And I wonder which are the things that don't receive enough attention, but that could be extremely high impact towards improving the quality of people's lives that don't get those resources because we're not shining a light on them because they're not scary and they're a little bit boring. Anything that's a slow burn. I can't remember what book I was reading, but it talked about this exact concept where so many people are afraid of getting bitten by a shark, but odds are insane in terms of that actually happening. But then something like heart disease or obesity is something that's impacting so many people around the world and is a serious issue. Of course, some people are focusing on this, but because it's slow burn and even like internally, if you are the person who is facing this, you don't adjust your life accordingly because it doesn't seem scary in the moment. So I do think it would be interesting for people to reflect in their lives as to what are the things where I'm trying to be really zeroist and I'm allocating my resources in a disproportionate way where it doesn't make sense? And what are the things that I'm not focusing on where even just a little bit of focus can substantially improve my life. Yeah. And just to end this thread and shift to something else, I think to recognize zeroist thinking in yourself, if you start saying, hey, this person is awful because of X and X is just like one thing, or this person is awesome because of X or anything that just sounds a little bit absolute, it might be time to just step back and say, okay, maybe my position here is pretty extreme. I think Donald Trump is a good but controversial example of this. He seems to generate a few responses, but there's two that are pretty acute. One is, he's my savior. He's the only one saving America. And the other is, this is the worst person that's ever existed on this planet, and he's ruining everything. And so if I say Donald Trump and your blood pressure goes up and your mind shuts down, or if you know your blood pressure goes up and your heart opens up and you're excited, it might be time to step back and say, how did I form my beliefs about this one person? And is this serving me and my goals in the ways in which I want to help myself in society? 
And how you're reacting to new information, right? Because sometimes you'll just hear a quote about something that the government decided to do, and you will form that reaction to the information just based on the fact that you knew Donald Trump made that decision or even was just related to that decision. Yeah, this happens in politics all the time. I'd like to shift the conversation, though, to businesses, which is where we spent most of our careers and how Xerus thinking really prevents at least startups from getting off the ground and making progress. I personally have had a lot of friends who I've seen, they go out and they try to build products. And the way they approach that is they try to build the most elegant and beautiful product. So elegant from an engineering perspective, beautiful from a design perspective, and they work six to eight months on something, never showing it to anyone and then release it out into the wild and hear crickets and wonder why they're hearing crickets, but also just keep iterating on that product without doing some of the things that uh, you and I know will increase the likelihood that you're successful with your startup. And I think that's largely because of Xerus thinking that I can't ship this thing until it's perfect. Exactly. I love the concept that perfection is not a strategy. I tweeted about this recently, and it was related to my experience as a chess player growing up. Basically, what I said is great chess players know that there are many ways to win. Rarely is it a perfect sequence, aka making all the right moves, but instead avoiding the wrong ones. And the same thing is true with the game of life, through relationships or investing, job cities, etc. But it's this idea where perfection is not a strategy. And a lot of people, to your point, if you're building a new product and you take the attitude of let me make this perfect and let me groom it and let me work six months on it and then you ship it and you realize, oh, no one cares about it. What you did there is you thought you were making all the right moves, but really what you did is you didn't take the time to avoid the wrong moves. And that's really how I see this, where if you're taking a more iterative approach, what you're doing is you're getting that feedback loop a lot more quickly. And so you're avoiding the wrong moves. Or if you are making the wrong moves, they're short-lived and you can pivot accordingly. So I think that's spot on. And I think one quick thing to mention is I also see that sometimes perfection is an excuse not to launch at all. So I'll also see people who will work on things for so many months and they'll say, it's just not ready yet. It's just not ready yet. And they'll never launch something or maybe they won't even start on it at all because they're trying to achieve perfection and they never actually get started. It seems like Xero's thinking is likely the worst when you have the most uncertainty. So when a startup or a product is getting off the ground, you don't actually know what's going to work. So the best thing that you can do is generate like 10 hypotheses about what might work, find a lean way to test them, test them, get the data, and then update your decision making and just move from there. And you just, as you mentioned, you incrementally iterate based on the feedback that you're getting. And there's, of course, best practices there. And you don't want to just ship something that's awful. But at the same time, I actually think that especially with startups, and this is probably true for lots of things, it is often better to move quickly. Think about what we did with this podcast. We're doing 30 pods in 30 days. We're not great podcasters. We're just trying to figure this thing out. We're going to get feedback along the way. But if we had tried to design something that was perfect with all the right distribution and metadata and all this stuff, we would have never launched this thing. And I'm glad that we did it the way we did. And it's been a little bit chaotic, but I think that's where zeroism really hurts people is when you don't know what will work. And so you try to think it through in your head. This relates to the conversation we had the other day about careers, where the best thing to do sometimes is just to make a move and see how it works out and update your thinking. Is it true? I was just wondering with chess. I've literally never played chess and and don't know the rules, sadly. But is it true that as you go throughout the game, you're basically getting more information, like what did your opponent do? But also if you make mistakes, you're learning from that and just looking for the next best sequence. Like you're not anchored on all of the mistakes that you made. Yeah, because there's no perfect chess game. I guess if you face a computer, there would be, but it really is this back and forth where you're trying to pursue the strategy that you have in mind, but then you are also reacting to whatever strategy that someone is bringing forth to you. So me and my sister used to play. She was always much better than me. And my dad used to say, you know, Steph, you're really great at chess and 
I was a lot more aggressive than her. But the reason I was worse than her was because of my aggression. So I would, for example, go on these big attacks. And what I wouldn't do is pay attention to what the other person was planning as I was attacking. And so my king would just be open for people who know a lot about chess, or I would just be at risk. And that's why, again, chess is not about making the perfect sequence. It's about avoiding the pitfalls, like paying attention to what's happening around you. But bringing this back to zeroism, I think the reason that when you're building a product, moving quickly is important is because in this frame of zeroism, what some people try to do is they try to avoid failure at all costs. So the same way we talked about avoiding any COVID cases at all costs, it's this idea of I don't want to fail at any point in this process. But instead, if you take the more iterative approach, you're actually saying, you know what, I'm totally cool with failure as long as it happens when it's earlier on and when I have less to lose. And you're getting that failure. You're almost locking in that failure at the beginning so that you can pursue the path that you need to. You're improving your skills and knowledge along the way too, which means you're making better bets. And of course, the world is uncertain and you're just making bets in an uncertain world and hopefully they work out, but you can improve the quality of your decisions with feedback. It makes me think of investing. One thing that was super counterintuitive when I first started active investing was the idea that you can make money if you're right 51% of the time. So if you made $1,000 bets on every single, let's just say you were picking stocks, if you're right 51% of the time, you can make money over time if you just continue to make bets. There's other factors like position sizing and risk mitigation and all of that. But the idea is that you can make money and not be right a large percentage of the time. That's nuts to me because when I actively invest, I'm probably actually right more than 50% of the time, but I feel really bad about the losers. And if I just think about the losers, I actually become a worse investor. And when you try to make sure that you have absolutely no failure, that in some way incites failure. To give another example as it relates to businesses is you see some businesses have really rigid processes and that's fine. There's certainly reason for it sometimes, but to use the example of expensing, you could take the absolute extreme where you say every expense file needs to be rigidly accessed and we have this long process for it. We're going to make sure nothing that shouldn't be expensed is getting expensed. That's fine. But think about the resources, again, that go into that to ensuring that perfection. And instead, if you had a more lenient process and encourage people actually at HubSpot, they use the term use good judgment, you probably are going to offset anything that trickles through that shouldn't with the resources that you're saving and not having this super rigid process. And that's just one example. But I think what's important here is that in trying to achieve perfection, the resources that you're allocating to that sometimes are counterintuitive and end up with a result that you weren't even intending in the first place. You can just end up spending more money than you're actually saving on things like expenses. I've actually worked mostly for companies who said, hey, just use your good judgment. Interestingly, psychologically, I probably spent less money than if someone had given me a budget for dinners or travel, because if I had the budget, I'd probably try to like maximize it or something. But in use your best judgment or another one was spend money like it's your own. I was pretty cautious when it came to spending. And I think the company probably saved money from that not having that policy in addition to the resources that didn't have to go into uploading receipts and then the accounting back end of all of that. I wonder if the same thing is true with company vacation policies. Lots of companies these days say, hey, you have unlimited vacation, and that actually ends up in people taking less vacation. So instead of making sure that you only do your 21 days and making people feel constrained, you actually give people the promise that they can take off as much time as possible and end up getting more productive work out of employees. I think if you focus too much on really controlling what people do, you can have counterintuitive effects. For example, if you were really constrained about the vacation that you gave people, maybe face value that would seem like you'd get more out of your employees, but maybe they'll work a little less hard during the week. So it's never as straightforward as it seems. And if you take really hard stances on things, I think you actually incentivize people to go outside of the systems that you developed. And that can actually be worse than having a more lenient system in the first place. 
You know, this really reminds me of something that I learned recently through practice. So I wrote a book and it's a paid product. And something that I realized as I was creating a product is there's all these things that you can worry about or pay attention to. And one of them that came up as it was content was this idea that people could pirate the book. And people can pirate the book and people have, I'm sure, pirated the book. But something that I've learned through this process myself is that as much time that I would put in stopping people pirating a product, I could actually reinvest that time and effort into just making the product better such that I'm not minimizing the likelihood that I lose money, but rather increasing the chances that I can make money through creating a great product. And I think that really illuminates this idea of zeroism, right? You can focus on minimizing the bad, or you can actually reinvest that energy into making something a little more productive. Why don't we wrap it up? A couple of the key takeaways I had from here are Zeroism is a type of thinking we can all fall into in different domains, and it's basically a binary view of one issue and the way the world should be. And the problem with zeroism is that you're not really doing cost-benefit analysis and thinking about trade-offs, limited resources, or the ways in which the thing that you're focusing on relates to other parts of your life. That can mean you run into walls. It can mean you don't start. It can mean you make less progress on something. It can mean you alienate people. There's all of these just bad downstream effects of zeroism that doesn't accept the world as it is, which is a bunch of shades of gray. It's if I asked you to take a shower and I gave you two options, you can take an ice cold shower or you can take a scalding hot shower. That doesn't exist. We probably all take some sort of version of a warm shower, except the productivity freaks who are taking cold showers every morning. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I think the key takeaway for me as I've thought through this in the last couple of weeks is just often our immediate reaction to any particular thing is that it's good or bad. And as you said, it's a shade of gray. And in particular, especially with some of these really controversial topics, it's important to just remember these things as a spectrum and recognize that it's not you versus someone else in their opinion, but you just lie somewhere on the spectrum and someone may lie somewhere else. And then the important aspect of some of these really hard topics is that just like everything else in the world, perfection is not a strategy. Perfection is really not even achievable. And so as we start to think through whether it's policy or just our opinions on things, just remember that we have limited resources and there is risk in every aspect of our lives. So just taking those things into account as we're making some of these judgments. Just one tactical tip that's helped me. When I find myself thinking that I only have two choices, whether it's a response to a situation or an action that I can take, I try to expand the scope of my choices because rarely is the world just divided in two. It's not us first them. It's not life or death. It's not this first that. It's a series of options that you can take. And if you find yourself thinking that there are only two options in a situation, it's likely that you're following into some sort of zeroism or perfectionist thinking. And it might be worthwhile to just step back and say, how can I increase the number of options here? And I think you'll end up with better outcomes. Well, that was episode number 11 of the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode and hope you ship before you're ready. Ship before you're ready. And also, please know this was not about politics. I think it's really important that we can have dialogue around some of these concepts. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I was a little more nervous here because we were talking about politicized issues. And I hope we can just keep focusing on the concepts because the idea here is to bring modalities of thinking that you can apply to all areas of your life. And it's not about this response to the pandemic was good, this was bad, or anything like that. I try not to take that type of thinking to anything in my life. And I hope that we can just find ways to talk about these issues in ways that are productive for the way that people think as versus taking some sort of stance on something. Because the idea here is that we're trying to think about how to be better citizens and people in this world and to improve the quality of our lives and the lives of others. And sometimes that means talking about tough stuff without the ways in which we may tie that to our identities. 
Exactly. And I think if we are actually to advance in theory in the world, you should be able to talk about different subjects and disagree on things. And without even in this episode taking a stance on things, hopefully help people think through some of these topics in ways that maybe they haven't thought about them in the past. Yeah. I have friends who cross the political spectrum and have all kinds of different ideas than me about all kinds of topics. And I'm proud of that. I hope that's the way it plays out throughout my life. All right. Let's leave it there. All right. Until next time.